When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben, and today we are joined, as always, by our super producer, Tristan, nicknamed TBA McNeil. Sounds good. That's the actual nickname? Well, we'll, we'll try. <laughs> we'll, we'll make an attempt. We'll, we'll find something along the way we usually do. Uh, today's episode, I, I feel like, has a theme that we explored, in a way, in an earlier piece that came out a few weeks ago. Well, what's that one? Uh, when we looked at abandoned factories. Oh, that's right. We did look at those, yeah. And this is a, a similar vein, I guess, mm-hmm. in that uh, we're going to be talking about abandoned racetracks. And I don't know if you've already mentioned this or not, Ben, but it comes from our own website. It comes from How Stuff Works. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a list that we're going to follow along with here. And by no means are these the only abandoned racetracks, even in the United States. There are so many. Our, our country is just covered with abandoned racetracks of all sorts. I mean, you're going to find, um, you know, old uh, quarter midget tracks. You're going to find motocross tracks. You're going to find drag strips, all kinds of, of raceways that have been left to rot, left to, uh, you know, let, let nature take over again. Right. And that's what typically happens in these cases. And, and I find it really interesting that, you know, you can, you can just find tons of photos online of abandoned racetracks and they have like a kind of a ghostly appearance to them, you know, with the, yeah. the empty grandstands that are kind of falling apart. And mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of them have, uh, you know, like wooden bleachers that are in, in disrepair. And, you know, of course the old, like, you know, Winston racing signs and, you know, the old, um, the old signs that are hanging on the, uh, on the walls, I guess. And, and all that stuff is still there. The, uh, the tower, you know, where the, that used to formerly hold the, uh, the members of the press or, you know, the, uh, the local sports writer, whoever was covering the, covering the big event, you know, on the Friday night at the, yeah. uh, at the dirt track in town. Um, all that stuff is still standing in a lot of cases. And, and in some cases, nature has almost completely taken over and you have to look at an aerial photograph, uh, photograph rather, right. in order to see the remnants of what was once there. But what's really fascinating, maybe, I, you would think that a lot of these places would be um, repurposed. You know, a lot of them would be turned into something else. You know, that something would move in there because it's a usually or typically a large piece of property. Yeah, and really large. And it's not a single loop of track. It's a it's track, but then it's also a compound because there are buildings like uh, pit buildings, concession stands, grandstands, like you said, mm-hmm. restrooms, all of that stuff 
that's sort of a support network for the actual racetrack. And you would think people would say, hey, this stuff's already here. Let's go ahead and and make it a factory or a store or some, some sort of business or find another way to operate it as a racetrack. But the problem is racetracks are very expensive to maintain. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, the fact that it was a racetrack, you know, what was there, a lot of cars constantly parked there on the infield, right. dumping fluids when they probably shouldn't be. Uh, there were there were probably gas tanks installed at some place, you know, on the, on the track, either above ground or below ground. Um, right. You'll find that a lot of these places carry environmental issues with them that a builder or developer just simply doesn't want to tackle. So you'll find that a lot of times these tracks, these, you know, maybe even, you know, 100 acres, 200 acres of property are just kind of left to rot. And and again, nature just takes over everything. And it it always wins. Nature always wins, Ben. So, yeah. um, I mean, that's <laughs> you can you can see that like happening in your own backyard. If you leave it, you know, for a month and don't mow back there. It starts to take over. It really does. Well, nature plays the long game, my friend. So <laughs> it always does. Yeah. So we've got ten. I mean, where right, do you want to start? Yeah. You want to start at the what we'll call number ten uh-huh. and count down. There's really no number one, I guess. Though. Right. We're not saying one racetrack is better at being abandoned than another. <laughs> no, no. And before we forget, or maybe we won't forget, but I'd like to you know point this out ahead of time. You know, at the, at the beginning part of the yeah, episode, yeah. think about racetracks in your own area that have have gone away. You know, the track that you used to go to when you were a kid that, you know, it, now it's just a field, but there are trees. Um, think about those, write in with those, tell us what they were called. Yeah. Maybe we can find them on Google Earth or something like that. And it'd be interesting to just discover some uh, some hidden gems out there. I definitely like this. You know, I'm I'm one of those people who never grew out of the childhood practice of, I'm not going to say breaking in. To abandoned buildings, but I always loved exploring. Oh, urban exploring. Uh, urban exploration, yeah, mm, for no. sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I cannot legally say that I've broken into abandoned buildings out of curiosity. Mm, I see. But, uh, oh, I see the nod. I cannot legally say <laughs> that it was cool. <laughs> I understand. And, you know, some of these would be kind of cool to take a look at, but likely they're still private property. Right. Um, it, you know, use caution. And when I said hidden gems, I probably meant hidden junk in a lot of cases because most of them are in really, really poor shape. But uh, still, a fascinating thing to find out in the out in the woods somewhere. You know, right. part part of a dirt track or part of a a paved track, even. Mm-hmm. That's and still that's, cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's another thing that's a very important point is if you happen to be on a road trip that brings you by one of these areas, or if you live in one of these areas, uh, do make sure to respect no trespassing signs, things of that nature, you know? Yeah, sure. And and if you are in contact with whomever does own this stuff, if it's still private property, I'm sure they'd be more than glad to let someone interested in the history of the racetrack explore it. But that's enough preamble, isn't it? I bet the owner, like whoever owns it, probably would have a fantastic story to tell. So uh, oh, yeah. you know, it might be worthwhile talking to them. Maybe you can even get a guided tour of the property. Wouldn't that be cool? Maybe you can tell them about your friends Scott and Ben, who would <laughs> also right. like to check out these racetracks, starting with number 10, the Twin City Raceway. Uh, yes, and it's not where you would expect. No. 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 I would think this would be in uh, Minneapolis, right? Right. No, it's not in Minneapolis. It's in South Carolina, and it's a dirt track. And the uh, the Twin City Raceway, uh, this is what really makes this one remarkable and why it stands out on this list. Now, it's abandoned, of course. I think it was around, it was open in, it was for a very short amount of time. It was open in 1964 and it closed in 1968. So this one's been gone for a long, long time. 
Uh, but this one was a, uh, it was a quarter mile high bank dirt track. And it was unlike a lot of tracks around the U.S. because this one had heated stands. Yeah, this is interesting. So South Carolina did have to deal with fans who would be cold, depending on the time of year. Mm -hmm. Their solution for this was to wrap the grandstands in tin, to coat them in tin, and then have wood stoves underneath the grandstand to provide heat. You know, I read something else about this, a little bit deeper into it, yeah. and, and tried to find out about those burners, like what they were using underneath, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it turns out that those were old tobacco barn burners, the ones that they would use to heat the tobacco barns in the area. So they had those, you know, a plenty in that right, area. Right. And, and by by simply keeping the stands uh, enclosed in that tin and able to heat them from beneath, I mean, it's like uh, it's like bun warmers. You yeah. Know? You got you got bun warmers <laughs> there. So throughout the uh, the year, I mean, I doubt they had to deal with snow. If they did, it was very rare. Um, and they probably wouldn't be racing, of course. But um, if it was cold, sure, the fans in the in the uh, in the stands were uh, were nice and toasty. At least one part of them. Yeah, at least one part. <laughs> but the uh, the interesting thing about this is, you would have thought this track would have been open for a longer amount of time because, due to that innovative heating system, they were able to hold races when ordinarily a crowd wouldn't attend. You know? Yeah, so they were able to start the season earlier and end the season later. And uh, again, it's just it's an unusual little quirk of this racetrack, and just made it stand out in the in the whole list. Really, I mean, we'll we'll find other little interesting things along the way in these in these top ten. But um, it's just kind of a neat thing that when you think about it, and I, I I think that right now a lot of that is gone. I mean, I don't think there's much left of this track. Right, you can still see the the dirt track in places, but it's not like. You can't go sit on the grandstand. Yeah, this is probably one of those that's like better seen from the air. You know, like yeah. uh, go on to Google Google Earth and uh, and take a look at that one. Uh, number nine on our list is the Tulsa Speedway, and it's exactly where you would think. It's in Tulsa, <laughs> Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. Uh, this is a drag strip, and it was around for about twenty years. Uh, and those twenty years well, were between nineteen eighty five and the year two thousand and five. There now, there's another one in the area that's called uh, the Tulsa Raceway, and that one is still open. That's not to be confused with the Tulsa Speedway. Uh, that we're talking about. Now, the Tulsa Speedway is closed, and the reason that it closed was because uh, noise complaints from the neighbors. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> didn't like the noise, com- didn't like the noise, you know. So here's what happens with a lot of these tracks, man. They're built mm-hmm. out in an area that is, uh, is, you know, relatively wide open. And this is a drag strip, so it needed a lot of space. Yeah. Um, and there's going to be a ton of noise coming from this thing, of course, on, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday even. Uh, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> you didn't think we could get through without doing that, right? I was wondering. I, I was wondering who would do it first. It wasn't bold enough. Maybe I should do it again. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, give it a shot. No, let's see. Okay. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Yeah, that's not bad, that's, man. Uh, that's all right. Let's see if I can get a little, maybe a role at a local radio station. Or yeah, something yeah, yeah. Now. You got to start. You got to start small, man. So <laughs> just uh, start going up to people at traffic lights and do and announce what's happening there. And you know, you might get picked up by. <laughs> I also might get shot. Yeah. <laughs> Look, man. Okay, okay. Got to be ambitious. So, anyways, there's a lot of noise on the weekends, right? And uh, then, you know, of course, here's what happens: urban sprawl, neighborhoods move into the area, right. they move close to the area, knowing that there's a racetrack there to begin with, and then they, after a few years, decide that's a lot of racket coming from over there. I don't like that, and uh, then they start to set up, you know, decibel meters and and realize that yeah, it's it's exceeding the uh, the, the limits for our you know township or town, you know, city or whatever, and. The uh, you know those complaints have actually some kind of legal grounds at that point, and they're able to kind of force the the small track out of business. Like I under I I understand the idea of you know breaking an ordinance or a local law 
but I just I have a tough time sympathizing with someone who moves next to a racetrack that has already been there. Yeah, and then expects the entire neighborhood to change. Yeah, I mean, this thing, well, it was around for 20 years. Yeah. So you know that this wasn't something that just, like, when they first went in, it wasn't a problem right away. They didn't battle this for 20 years, I don't right. think. yeah. I don't think that's the case. Now, I agree with you completely. Like, there's a lot of people that will buy a house near an airport and then complain about the plane noise. Right. Or they will, uh, you know, same thing with the, the racetrack or uh, um, a music theater of some kind, you know, like an amphitheater. Sure. Outdoor. Yeah. Outdoor venue. Um, but if you're there already, if you're in the neighborhood already, and then they build a racetrack near you. That's different. Or an airplane airport near you. Oh, yeah. God, that'd be awful, wouldn't it, if they put in a small airport next door to you? I don't know. I mean, if I could use it, if I could just hang out there, I'd yeah, be all well, about it. Yeah, if you could uh, taxi your own plane right to your back door. How cool, <laughs> how cool would that be? All right. So anyways, this this, this place, this, um, this Tulsa Speedway was shut down. And again, the Tulsa Raceway is still open. Um, and the Tulsa Raceway... By all accounts, I haven't been personally, but by all accounts, it's great. Mm -hmm. Especially, you know, if you like drag races, it's got a uh, 60-foot-wide concrete strip, and it has seating for 10,000 people. 10,000. So that's a big drag strip. Yeah. A big, big place. Um, One thing about this, though, is if you look for photos of the um, the Tulsa Speedway, Uh uh, again, it was only shut down in 2005, this is still mostly complete. It still looks like a, a usable racetrack. It's almost really? like you could move in and, uh, you know, take the weed eater out there and, and maybe fresh coat of paint and it's ready to go. Well, okay, maybe not that simple, <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's uh, right. it's in decent shape. Uh, the grandstands, concession stands, all those are still intact. Um, it, it actually hasn't, you know, it still has an abandoned look to it, but it's uh, it's definitely savable at this point, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's my, so. uh, that's my, that's my, that's your two cents. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my, uh, non-real estate agent, uh, um, uh, assessment of the property, yeah. I guess, is that, yeah, you could make this work again. And I think, it, I think it would be cool, but then also it goes to the question, uh, for a lot of people, you know, a lot of city planners probably ask this question too. How many raceways does, or speedways does a city need? Well, also, you got those residents nearby that don't want it to be open. So, oh, yeah, right. Uh, yeah. There'd be that little trouble, little issue. We're going to reopen the track. I'm sure that wouldn't be, uh, <laughs> I'm sure that wouldn't be, uh, a popular viewpoint uh, around Tulsa, but, yeah, I can um, see number eight on our list. Uh huh. Metrolina Speedway. Yes. So stock car racing comes from the American South and one of the biggest racing towns in this country is Charlotte, North Carolina. Holmes NASCAR Hall of Fame, and it's the headquarters of a lot of top racing teams. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of smiling as you're talking here, Ben, because I wonder. I wonder if it's Metrolina or Metrolina. Mm. I don't know, because it's Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. North, it's in Charlotte, North Carolina. It could be Metrolina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It probably is Metrolina. I feel like, I feel like Metrolina is a good choice. <laughs> you know, it's funny, like these old tracks... I, there's no one really around to pronounce it. You don't hear anybody pronouncing them, so uh, so I guess we'll just go with that and hope it, hope it works. But um, this was actually also called the Charlotte Fairground Speedway for a while. Um, it was a dirt track. Then it was paved in the 1970s, and um, it's what it was. I think initially it was a half mile clay bank track. Uh huh. So it was a short track, a r- relatively short track. But as you said, Ben, this one actually held NASCAR races at some point in the 1970s, and I think even Dale Earnhardt raced here at some yeah, point. Yeah, that's true. And it had kind of like a, a Wild West mentality about it. You know, like, um, this is one of those tracks where you could just, anything was legal on the track. It was like you could bring 
anything out there and they would allow it. Nitrous oxide, any type of spoiler you wanted to bring, right. whatever engine size you wanted. I'm sure they classified you uh, against other cars that were similar, yeah. but it was a, uh, a run what you brung mentality that, that kind of ruled the night there. Which I think is cool. Yeah, I do too. I like it when they, um, they allow, <laughs> this, is so, this is so backwards when you, when you see it happening. Mm. When they allow spectators to race on the on the tracks, and I'm guessing that this is one of those tracks that probably allowed that sort of thing. And I think that I've probably mentioned this on the air before, but I used to go to the Speedway up in Michigan that was yeah. one that on weekends would offer, um, you know, spectator races. You could borrow a helmet from somebody in the pits. As wow. long as you had a seatbelt, you uh-huh. could race whatever your streetcar was on this track. And I don't remember the length of the track. I think it was called like Dixie Speedway or something like that. Or maybe I've got it mixed up with another one. Uh-huh. Uh, it was farther north. Uh, it was, I can't remember exactly what city it was in or anything. Um, I, I'll look this up afterwards and I'll kick myself for not remembering it. But, <laughs> but um, I saw some great races, you know, between some streetcars, you know, people that clearly had worked all week to try to get their car ready for that night to race yeah, yeah. against whoever they were up against because it was just randomly paired against each other. And then it would kind of eliminate down to the, the eventual winner. This has all been for $100. People would win $100 at the end of the night if you were the, the champion of the spectator races. And I saw a guy in, I don't know what it was, like, like a Cavalier or a Sunbird or something like that, destroy his daily driver. I mean, he went straight into the wall. It felt oh, terrible no. for the guy. Like, I mean, the, he came off a turn and just went just directly straight into one of the, the walls, right, against the grandstands. And... It's like nobody could believe it. Of course, you know, everybody's like, oh, my, you know, hands on the head. Like, what is this guy thinking even yeah. doing this? And he got out and he was so, like, weak need He could barely walk. He was, like, all shaky because I think of the adrenaline and probably just the the, <laughs> the, uh, the gravity of what had just happened because he had just ruined his daily daily ride trying to win 100 bucks. And I think that happens a lot. But yeah. this this track, this, this, uh, this uh, speedway in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, I, I really do appreciate that, that um, – as you do, that uh, well, that kind of like bring whatever you want, have fun with it. It's yeah. it's all about you know who can go the fastest and uh, who's got the most guts, I guess. Yeah, because now I'm thinking, I was originally thinking of you know cars that would have modifications that would keep them out of other races. Yeah, but now I keep thinking about what the strangest vehicle would have been. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, yeah. I bet there were both. I bet it was yeah. just like you know the. You know the uh, the the streetcar that you just bought that week, mm-hmm. and then also you know the the modifieds that were you know completely at the opposite end of the spectrum. I just, yeah, in my head, I have this very clear vision of a souped-up tractor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you never know. I you mean, never know. You it never know. happened. Run, uh, run what you brung. That's it. Run what you brung. So we're going to move uh, a little bit further north, but not too much for our next one, Marlboro, Maryland. And uh, this is the Marlboro Motor Motor Raceway. That's a hard one to say. Marlboro no Motor, motor Raceway, Raceway. Um, opened in 1952 and was in existence until about 1970. This was a a paved track, right? That's right. This is a paved track, but it closed down due to safety issues. Yeah, safety issues. Now that's kind of a a vague thing, right? But right. Um, you know, here's the thing. It could be that, you know, the uh, the standards of whatever series we're racing there were saying you got to install this type of barrier system. You have to install this type of fence. You have right. to have uh, X number of feet between the grandstands and the track, that kind of thing. That's my gut instinct on this one is that that's what shut it down. Without actually digging into the uh, the, the deep, deep dive history of the Marlboro Motor Raceway, 
Um, I don't know exactly what it was and the cost that was associated with whatever it was to uh, to keep it up to code, but I'm assuming that that's what it is. And when you when you close the track down for safety issues, that's usually what it is. Right. Um, if it's something like um, a, a dangerous shape track or you know the the grading's wrong on the turn or something mm-hmm. like that, um, typically a track will take care of that. They'll they'll reshape the track so it's not a, a D shape anymore. Now it's an oval. Right. Uh, that kind of thing. You know. Um. Uh. Well. In this case, I think that, you know, it must have been something that was uh, significant enough to p- actually put them out of business, to say right. it's not worth the uh, the effort to do that. Or maybe, you know, a lot of these small tracks, they don't do, you know, a pile of business anyways. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe there's a better way to say that. They don't do a um, uh, such a, a brisk business that it has enough cash flow that they're able to, to do stuff like that. It's like, well, they're, they're just like another job like anybody else. I mean, mm-hmm. in um, some cases, it's also seasonal. So for a part of the year. The business is not open. Yeah, and that's typically when they do construction or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, when they when it's downtime. Uh, so yeah, I mean, without again digging deep into the Marlboro Motor Raceway, if anybody lives in that area in around Marlboro, Maryland, and knows, uh, you know, what happened to this thing back in 1970, like what was the safety issue that did shut it down? I'd love to find out right. specifically what that was. And this is our first. This is our first entry in the list that has a uh, a kind of, an epilogue. To its ending. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's been repurposed, right? Yeah, you can uh, still go there. Uh, they use it for car club events. The mm-hmm. a lot of the track though is in is in bad shape because mm-hmm. again, it's expensive to maintain that stuff. Sure. So they maintain part of it. Right. And uh, if you happen to have a car club in the area, and you haven't heard of this track, it sounds like a really cool opportunity to get get your buddies together. And uh, explore some of Maryland's history. Oh, sure, yeah. And, you know, this one, we need to add one more little note about this one. This is a um, a historic uh, track for one, well, one big reason for General Motors, for Chevrolet. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where uh, the Chevy Corvette made its racing debut. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, um, I mean, makes sense, I guess, with the time frame. I mean, this is a brand-new track back in 1952, and uh, with Chevy kind of playing around with Corvette in 1953, or that was when it was released, Yeah, uh, this is right where it was started. So uh, um, another interesting little footnote in history, I guess, is that, uh, you know, that's where Chevy debuted the Corvette. And we will continue exploring abandoned racetracks after a word from our sponsor. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, 
those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Not only are we back to the show, but we're going back down south to Manassas, Virginia. Back in time. And back in time. Back in time all the way to 1948. And that is when the Old Dominion Speedway in Manassas, Virginia was constructed. Right, yeah. Uh, And it began with some people just racing cars in a field. Yeah, they were racing in a field back in the 1940s. I think that's pretty cool. And and the way yeah. it's described in this article is that, you know, it started out with kind of like informal local races, you know, like where, you know, local guys and girls would get together and race whatever they had again mm-hmm. on these uh these small on small track that they just kind of crafted out in the middle of nowhere probably. Yeah. Uh but as time, you know, progressed from 1948 on, as we said, you know, they paved this in the 1950s. Um, they started incorporating things like a go-kart track and a drag strip and became kind of a big raceway in the 1950s. It was a major raceway. In fact, big enough that it drew NASCAR races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uh, did have a NASCAR speedway. Mm-hmm. That's right. And as it was as it was growing, though, the rest of the town and the uh, metro area around it was growing as well. And this goes into the sprawl that we mentioned earlier in the episode. Oh, there you go again. It's it's forcing them out. Right. So the Washington area, you know, Washington, D.C., began expanding. And in the early 2000s, it was sort of pushing at the Old Dominion Speedway. And they kept going. Stayed open until 2012. Yeah, they held on as long as they could. And, uh, and the thing about this is that it, it looks to me that it's still in relatively decent shape. I, I, I tried to look up some photos of this, uh, this track and it's not in, in, you know, w- the worst condition ever, but it is starting to crumble and starting to decay. So right. it's got that abandoned look, obviously. But again, 2012 wasn't that long ago. It's five years, um, as we were writing this or recording this podcast, rather. Um, so it's, it's in decent shape. It looks like it could be again resurrected, but, um, eh, again, you got that urban sprawl. You got the, uh, you know, the neighborhoods that are, that are yeah. encroaching on the property. And I, I just don't think it's ever going to happen again for that place. It's going to have to be, you know, raised and repurposed to something else. It's neighborhood opposition. Yeah. Uh, also, as we mentioned, well, we talked a little bit about the environmental concerns that some folks will have mm-hmm. due to, you know, uh, a, bunch of oil and gas being in the soil sure brake fluid all kinds of sure. fluid i mean anything that but comes the, out of a car but the thing that the thing that is problematic there is 
in some cases, a developer might want to buy it, but they can't because they're also buying the responsibility for cleaning up that place. Yeah, exactly. It's not like a... Not like a super fun site or anything, right. but uh, but it's close. I mean, it, you would have to pay probably similar to the fines that would be associated with, like if you bought an old piece of property that was owned by a gas station where they had underground tanks and had to remove those. And, right. And uh, there's a certain amount of dirt that has to be removed from that area mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, taken somewhere that is, <laughs> they can't dump it near, you know, a stream bed or just anywhere. Mm-hmm. It can't be used as fill dirt anywhere. It's not clean fill dirt. Yeah. Uh, that has to be hauled somewhere. Uh, that is a, a contained area. I don't know about a contained area, but you know what I mean, like a um, a quarantined area almost. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of, of cost associated with this uh, due to environmental concerns. And I'm guessing that, again, you know, with the sprawl associated with, uh, you know, the D.C. area, I, I don't think that this track is ever going to be brought back, uh, brought back to life. Which is a which is a crying shame because yeah. it's still it's still pretty new. If you happen to uh, have the means and want to buy a racetrack. Yeah, well, sure. If you want, maybe you could run bicycle races there. Something quiet. Yeah. What else? Oh, electric car racing. Yeah. You could run. An, why haven't we thought of electric that? cars? Why, all day. why have we not thought of this? This we, could be a yeah. Tesla track. Yeah, we did an episode on uh, electric racing a long time ago, and it is progressed. Yeah, bring your Fisker car, Fisker Karma, uh-huh. and uh, and race all day long. You could race all night long, and no one would even know. No one would know at all. Uh, <laughs> Night time. Oh, you know what, man? This is a great idea, Ben. No, we we should get together, you and I. Okay. All just pool all of our money together, buy one of these old tracks, refurbish it. You know, get it back in shape. One of the ones that's in decent shape already. Sure, sure. You know, like maybe just go out there and you know put down some Roundup and get rid of the weeds in between mm-hmm. the cracks. Then we could run a a nighttime electric car uh, series. It's an interesting idea. It's definitely a niche. I'm worried a little bit about the marketing because does anybody really want to be known as the quietest racetrack on earth? <laughs> no, they don't. In fact, that's my main cons- <laughs> my main complaint with uh, with um, uh, what was it? The E? Oh, the uh, Formula One replacement. Yeah, it was supposed Formula to be the E or whatever. Yeah, Formula E. That was it. Yeah. You know, here's the other thing. I guess you'd have to tell the crowd to be quiet. Like they couldn't cheer. Right, so you'd have to have like all these like, oh yeah, you know, like almost like in a um, like a television studio when they have like a like this sign that says shh, yeah, or you applause, yeah, <laughs> or they'd have to like snap their fingers instead, oh, yeah, very beatneck. Okay, well, I think it's a strong idea. Uh, I think we've got a, a little bit more work to do on it. Well, I'm an idea guy. I'm not really one to institute the plan. You're or a big to, picture guy. Yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm here to provide the idea. Now, maybe someone out there will do this. You know, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Just yeah. find the quietest fans you can find, that's all. Just quiet. All right. Thing. We oh, gotta move on to number five. That's right. This has a real, this is a really interesting one, Scott. Uh, this is maybe to me the most interesting one. This, uh, now the name is gonna sound weird, ladies and gentlemen, but just go with me on this. It's <laughs> called the Wee Town Outlaw Speedway. The Wee Town Outlaw Speedway. Near Fergus Falls, Minnesota. And no, it's not a track where, uh, we're using tiny cars or having tiny people in tiny cars. <laughs> tiny outlaws? Tiny outlaws. <laughs> uh, they That's hosted stock car races. Regular size cars. Regular size yeah, okay. cars. <laughs> I don't know if we have to really specify that the rest of the tracks in this, uh, in this list. Yeah. Had regular size cars, unless they were quarter midgets or something like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's, and that actually is a good point. But, uh, of course, the drivers were also presumably not all criminals. You know, this wasn't like a felony only 
racetrack. They weren't wee drivers. They were uh, they were normal sized drivers as well. Uh huh. Okay. All right. Well, what makes this one probably the most interesting one, and and the reason that it closed down? I don't even have the an idea of what years this one was open. I don't know the the dates on this one. The problem with this track is that it continually was flooding. Right. So no problems with the neighbors. Uh, other tracks would close because uh, there were high costs, or there were safety issues, or um, the facilities were getting were aging out. Yeah, or they couldn't draw fans. Right. That wasn't really the problem here. The problem was that they built this track on a floodplain of all places. Yeah. Now the assumption here is that it was cheap. It was inexpensive to build a track mm-hmm. on this property, and of course, floodplain property is is uh, you know low rent compared to places that don't continually get flooded with water. So uh, it makes sense that, you know, if you're looking for a bargain of a racetrack, you would want to build in this area. But then again, look what happens. I mean, you look at photos of this place, um, of this Wee Town Outlaw Speedway, and it looks like you're looking at an, an arena where they might run, uh, like, you know, speedboat races or something. Right, yeah. It's crazy. It's it's grandstands and then a lake right yeah. in front of the right in front of the grandstands. And I don't think it's that way all the time. I think it's just that way when it floods, but it floods often. Because, mm-hmm. again, floodplains flood. Yeah. Duh. That's in the name. Yeah, I know. And, but it had to, you know, here's the thing. It had to have also been on the deed to the property. So who's the, uh, the, the genius that decided that they're going to build a speedway there? That's, that's a good question, too. I mean, again, I understand pinching pennies when you have to. Sure. But, <laughs> I mean, this just, it couldn't even go on. I that's, mean, they, they yeah. couldn't recuperate from flood after flood after flood. That's why I'm going to, officially deemed this one as one of the unsalvageable ones. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, honestly, though, it does look like you could use it for something else, though. These photos are, are they're kind of comical. I mean, when yeah. you see the, the grandstands yeah, yeah. go right up to it, it looks like one of those arenas, you know, when you go to, uh, like, um, SeaWorld or something like that, and you see a, uh, you know, a boating show that has, you know, like the, uh, uh water skiers and uh-huh. they're, they're doing formations and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, tricks yeah. in the boats and all that stuff. Uh-huh. That's what this looks like to me. You expect to see a whale jump out of the uh, of the middle of this arena. That's kind of this, cool. Uh, this arena, I should say, arena. It's a track. Yeah, but uh, so it's very shallow water. Um, so we have to you have to I dig deeper into it. Yeah, you maybe, have to have an in ground pool kind of situation. Maybe they could work out some deal with like uh, you know radio control boats or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be a cool place to have that. Yeah, you know, I wonder because I, I know there are people who race uh, radio control boats, race mm-hmm. RC boats, but I feel like I haven't seen one for a long time. Yeah, I haven't either. And, you know, you know it seems like, uh, what was that? You remember the other fairgrounds that we talked about that had, uh, that hosted a speedboat race on their horse track? Remember they flooded the oh, horse yeah, track? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man, I wish I could remember the name of that right now. But uh, that was a fun episode. That, so was, a good, that was pretty interesting. It, it seems like maybe that would uh, that'd be a good fit here, too. But uh, let's move on to number four. Ah, uh, yes, Scott, we must correct ourselves, my friend, because... We earlier made a false guarantee of regular sized cars. <laughs> That's right. Just moments ago. Just moments ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because right. <laughs> uh, we neglected to consider the Robin Wood Speedway. Yeah, that's in Gastonia, North Carolina. And it was built as a clay track for midget cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it was super popular though. It hosted, uh, I don't have the entire career mm-hmm. of the Speedway. But I know from 49 to 53, it hosted the Junior Grand Nationals. Yeah, now this one, I think, I think this one opened right after World War II, or so we're talking around 1945, mm-hmm. if I had to guess. And you're right about hosting the, uh, the Nationals from, 
uh, the Grand, the Junior Grand Nationals from 1949 to 1953. And this is one of those like, it's a high profile event. It's a, it's a, um, a thing that really drew in the crowds, really got the name on the map. Yeah. And it was owned by, of all people, Humpy Wheeler. Mm-hmm. Humpy Wheeler is a, a NASCAR promoter. He's about 80 years old now. He's still around. Yeah. Um, at this point, you know, it's the recording of this. But he was the former president and GM of us, of the uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway uh, towards the end of his career. So, um, you know, a a super charismatic guy that really knew how to promote the track and get people in into the stands and get people uh, get butts in the seats. I guess is what right. uh, what his job was, and he did that. He made it so popular, in fact, that the track itself just turned out to be too small. Of all things, like this one suffered because the track was too small. They couldn't house enough fans. It couldn't house enough. Everybody people. wanted to go. Yeah, the the rest of the tracks on our on our list here, a lot of them, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them had an issue with getting, you know, again, butts in the seats. They couldn't yeah. do it. This guy had the opposite problem, so they had to move to um, a bigger place, you know, because they had what, I mean, I'm going to ballpark this. They had 5,000 fans. They right. needed to be able to get 10,000 in. If they had 10,000, they needed to get 20,000 in. It was something like that, that kind of proportion. It was just that much too small. So the much larger Carolina Speedway was built as a replacement, and then they abandoned the Robinwood Speedway. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one also is one of one of the speedways that you would have a a, a tough time noticing. Yeah, you, you know, you might not even be able to find it at all. You'd have to know the coordinates almost, really, and even from aerial views, uh, you can barely make out where this thing was. It's it's just. I mean, there's barely anything left at all of it. So if you're, uh, you know, someone who's out searching for this one, you know, good luck. Talk yeah. to an old timer in the area and find out where it was, and maybe they can point to you like, you know, this was turn three. Uh, there's a little bit of banking left over here in this field, uh, but that's it. And you have the perfect opportunity to begin your investigation because we will return after a word from our sponsor. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. 
We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Did anybody happen to find anything? Anybody <laughs> take that time to get some clues? All that time. All that time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, let us know. Uh, let us know if, if you're able to do that. I feel like such a uh, such a jerk for, for doing that, for giving people homework. Yeah, you're like the dean of car stuff. You're like uh, you're like making me work on the weekends when uh, when I don't want to work. You know? <laughs> Yeah, but if you do what you love, it's never really work. Oh, that's true, I guess. And looking for old racetracks is kind of that's kind of fun, right? I mean, that's we, a cool thing. We've got three more here. You want to go through yeah. uh, the, the top three, I guess. Top three. If you want yeah. to call it top three. Uh, the number three uh, track on our list here is the I seventy Speedway, and that's in Odessa, Missouri, and it runs right alongside I seventy as you would expect. Right. Yeah. It's a it's a shorter track. It was built in nineteen sixty nine, and for the for the time. It was uh, pretty high end in comparison to a lot of other racetracks. Oh, that's right. This is the one that had uh, not bench seats, but um, had uh, like individual seats for for the fans. Right. Yeah. Um, also had things like VIP suites and lots of concession stands and, uh, and nice bathrooms. And mm-hmm. uh, it was just it was unusual for 1969 to find this kind of thing at a smaller track. And as you said, it, w- it was small. It was a five eighths. It was a five eighths mile uh, paved short track. It was an oval. And one other. Like a really unusual thing about this track is that it switched back and forth between paved and dirt. So, right, yeah. so in 1969, it started out as a paved track. Then in the early 1980s, they made it back into a dirt track. Mm-hmm. And then in about 1988, I think it was, they paved it again. So it yeah. kind of has flip-flopped back and forth, uh, you know, based on the needs. But again, this was a, uh, I guess what makes this one stand out the most really is that it was just such a, a posh track at the time. It was just mm-hmm. something that was, uh, kind of unheard of in that era. Yeah, and it was very popular because NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series uh, went there. It also hosted American Speed Association races. And the story of the closure is a little bit vague. Yeah. You know, there are some questions I have about it. So they got a new owner, uh, and shortly after that, in 2008, the Speedway was closed. Yeah, so from 1969 until 2008, this thing was uh, was owned, owned and operated by, I think, the same person. I'm not mm-hmm. entirely sure. But uh, but again, it changed ownership in around 2008, and it did shut down. So um, it's a little bit uh, a little bit murky on the details about what happened after that point. But right. uh, but again, sprint cars, modified cars, the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series, um, some big names were there. So yeah, um, all the way up until 2008, and I would guess that this is one that you could probably still see some uh, some remnants of this track. I haven't even looked for photos of this one, um, but uh, anyways, you check it out and see what it looks like. I, I bet it has that kind of ghostly abandoned look if it's if it's still standing which i think is so cool yeah. yeah and it'd be kind of it'd be really interesting if any of these 
still have drivable tracks mm-hmm. to just take a car out on the track. And I, I don't know. It feels like you're, you're racing in, in, in a haunted house. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, I've seen people do this. It, you, I'm glad you kind of mentioned this. And before we get to their top two, yeah. um, I was thinking about some other tracks, like people, people have, um, kind of resurrected the tracks, you know, that were, that were long gone. Like, um, and one thing that, that doesn't really relate to auto racing, but sort of does. It's a, it's a bicycle racing, uh, velodrome that they discovered in Detroit that had been overgrown for so long. It was in a park, I think, uh-huh. right in downtown. And I think some, uh, some like local hipster guys got together with like, you know, a bunch of lawnmowers and kind of mm-hmm. just carved this thing out of, you know, the, the ground where it was kind of buried and, and covered with weeds and people had, you know, there's been graffiti all over it and everything, but it was a concrete velodrome for bicycles. And they cleaned it up enough that people could actually ride their bikes on it again. And I think I've seen go-karts and things like that on it too. So wow. it reminded me of it, you know, with, with bank turns and everything. But I, I would bet that people do this in, in, you know, some of the, um, uh, the, you know, the, the, like more rural areas of, of our country where they find, you know, like an old motocross track or something. And mm-hmm. it doesn't take a whole lot of work to get it back into shape. And that becomes kind of their own private playground for a while mm-hmm. until they lose interest in it. And then, you know, of course, again, nature takes over. But, um, man, that would be fun, wouldn't it, to, to have knowledge of a, a local track somewhere here yeah. in Atlanta or near Atlanta, uh-huh. maybe up in the mountains somewhere, and uh, just go up there with, a, you know, a weed whacker and uh, and some <laughs> some tools, some light tools, uh-huh. and maybe race our own cars. That would be, I mean, I don't think it's impossible. I think it's it's actually within the realm of possibility. Yeah, but again, this is this comes into the trespassing issues too. So right. somebody probably owns the property. It doesn't just, you know, just doesn't just sit there really. Yeah, somebody probably owns it. Yeah, whether like, it's state or county or something. There's you know? not yeah, there's not a lot of unowned land. <laughs> it's a nice dream though, isn't it? Wouldn't that it's be fun? Cool. And if you know, if you're the owner of that uh of that property, then probably your only concern is liability if something goes wrong. Oh, sure, you can't can't carry insurance for something like that, you know, for, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. clandestine racing. And this brings us to number two on our list, this concept of owning ownership, right? Mm-hmm. The Vineland Speedway. So this is in Cumberland County, New Jersey. And let's be honest, Scott, I, I, in the U.S., a lot of people have a slight stereotype about racing fans Mm -hmm. that we're all from the south yeah right uh this proves racing is popular around the world and the violent speedway was doing pretty well it had stock car racing drag racing motorcycle racing and more it opened in uh 1955 yeah like a lot of places it was a dirt track at first yeah oval track yep dirt oval track and a few years later in 58 they paved it but Despite the fact that it was in a good location, despite the fact that it had multiple races and good crowds, eventually it had to close. Yeah, not that long, much later. I mean, this is 10 years later when it closed. It was only open from 1955 until 1965. But, uh, you know, you'd mentioned that they had all that different, all those different types of racing, and they right. all didn't happen on the oval track. They also had a, a paved road course for sports cars. Right. And so, you know, they got this, you know, a pretty good variety of, of types of racing that they could they could do there. Um the reason that it closed, I mean it was a is as we know, I mean as we heard, it's a well rounded racing venue. Yeah. The problem was money. 
Uh, they just didn't have enough money coming in. And um, But why did they not have enough money? <laughs> well, the reason was the track owner had to lease the land from several different landowners. So mm-hmm. rent, as you can imagine, is expensive and probably changing all the time. I mean, yeah, not a I, good look. No, no, exactly. So there's all these little bits of land that he's trying to lease in order to keep this whole operation running. And in 1965, they decided that um, they're just going to sell off part of this uh, this track, part of the, the property, to a local community college, and uh, and that's when the Vineland Speedway closed back in 1965. So, mm-hmm. um, sad story to end this one. Yeah. I guess we're we're not to our number one track yet, but uh, for this one, that's a that's that's a terrible way to end. I mean, ten years later, and and something like you know, different landowners and and changing rent and all that. That's what gets in the way. That's that's awful. And it sounds like it was a popular venue. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, but that's business. I I guess so. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And this brings us to the very last item on our list, number one, the North Wilkesboro Speedway. Yeah, now I have a number on this one as uh, as opening in 1948, and I'll tell you why. Uh, because they mentioned that this one kind of matched the uh, the history of NASCAR, really. Um, it opened right in the early days of NASCAR. So ni- NASCAR began in 1948. I'm assuming that that is when this track was built. I mm-hmm. can't find a definite number on when it was built. All the stories that I read just seem to uh, neglect that fact. They don't tell me when it opened, but uh, they will tell you when it closed. It closed in 1996. Uh, so it's been closed for what? Is that 21 years now? Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's hard to believe. 96 was 21 years ago. I am ready to completely <laughs> forget about that. <laughs> but this is probably one of the best-known abandoned racetracks in the entire United States. Now, uh, North Carolina, that's where this one's located. Uh, again, this is the North Wilkesboro Speedway. Mm-hmm. And this one has a ex- an extremely rich NASCAR history. Um, you know, the whole area does, really, all of North Carolina. But this this track, this particular track, spent nearly 50 years as a stop on NASCAR's Winston Cup Series uh, mm-hmm. um, circuit. And this so, track was actually older than NASCAR. Oh, it's older. Than, okay, so it, it predates 1948 then. So it, it, it was around for, boy, 50-plus years then. Um but this is really interesting. Um, the the guy that was named NASCAR's first champion, the guy's name was uh, Robert Red Byron, mm-hmm. uh, was crowned champion there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, you know, again, deep deep roots with NASCAR. A lot of history at this track. A lot of fans really hated to see this one go in '96. But its history was, in a way, part of its downfall. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about okay, think about modern racetracks. Right. Uh, they've got these enormous suites. They've got huge grandstands. The number of people that a NASCAR race draws today uh, is nothing like what it drew what it drew back in 1948. And it was popular. Yeah. It wasn't as popular as it is now, or you know, even a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just didn't have the amenities that the, that the teams and the fans needed. So they couldn't keep up with what you know the, the modern teams needed and what the fans wanted. Yeah, and the race racing teams also had some um, objections to the track, uh, especially they thought it had uneven banking and was short. Uh, there were there were just numerous problems that come with age. Sure, yeah, and so they closed down in 1996, as we said. You know, a lot of fans were pretty upset about this one, but it had to go. I mean, it was time. It had, you know, was it long in the tooth? Is that the saying? Yes. Uh, it was a little bit long in the tooth. So um, back in 2015, there was a photographer. His name is uh, Seth Lawless. And he went, uh, you know, to this track and, and did some incredible photographs of the facility, you know, mm-hmm. the abandoned facility. It had been uh, shut down for quite a time there. I guess it was, uh, well, 2015. That would have been um, 19 years ago, 19 years after it was shut down. Uh, so you can imagine the condition, a little right. run down, but that's what he was looking for. 
And he's got some excellent photos online of it. There's, a, there's in fact, there's a ton of photos out there if you want to take a look for uh, the North, North Wilkesboro Speedway in North Carolina. And uh, I think you'll be impressed with what you see. And, and that's, that really, it, those photos give you a feel for, you know, kind of the allure of, of what we've been talking about all right. day. Is yeah. like, it's just such an interesting thing to think about, you know, the history that, that went down there. Um, all the fans that would go there every weekend, how alive these places were, and now how dead they are. You know, that's they're, they're just like shells of their former self. Yeah, and I know this is kind of weird, but I suspect it's pretty common for any of us who have had the opportunity to explore large abandoned structures, especially when you walk through an empty area and you think 5,000, 10,000 people were sitting here you know, it's almost impossible not to imagine, like, the shouting or the, the distant cheers is sort of the way that people uh, feel like they hear the ocean when they put a seashell to their ear. Yeah. Uh, and that, that to me, is one of the uh, one of the strange places where you can almost tangibly feel history. Mm-hmm. So I think that if it's possible to save or somehow reuse any of these sites... Absolutely should. So in the case of the Vineland Speedway, uh, they turned part of the land was sold to a community college. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think there's still value in these places. There are things we can do. Uh, is every single one on this list going to be revitalized? Almost absolutely not. Yeah. Like, I would be very surprised if any of them were. Although I do think it's worth the effort. Yeah, you know, I've heard, I think there were other ones on this list, and I don't even know if we mentioned this or not, but, um, you know, after they're, uh, they were, I guess, used up, if you want to put it that way, you know, once, yeah. uh, once they were done with, uh, with hosting, you know, the car races, uh-huh. um, you know, and it's, it's left abandoned for a while, you know, maybe a year or two, and then suddenly, you know, someone decides they're going to put it in a motocross track, but they're going to use part of the front stretch, um, as, as that, because it has the, you know, the grandstands. Uh, they're still usable at that point. You know, they're not decayed to the point where they're not uh, able to be uh, sat on or, or you yeah, know, yeah. stepped on without, you know, cracking or crushing. Um, some people use it for stuff like that. You know, the, it, what does that cost? You bring in a, a few truckloads of dirt and you create a motocross track on the infield. Yeah. You don't use turns, you know, uh, two, three, and four, mm-hmm. but you do use turn one uh, and the main and the main stretch. <laughs> right. And uh, and there you go. You got a uh, like a nearly ready-made uh, facility there for you for a motocross event. I mean, it's pretty easy. Uh, to see what you could do with this, or you could turn it into a, a go kart venue for a while. Um, it seems like you know if you get to it early enough, if you, you can mm-hmm. reuse what's there. If you get to it later, maybe you know you you start over. It's a fresh start for somebody that wants to develop something like that. Um, I don't know what the market is right now for you know small <laughs> tracks, but they're still all over the place. People are still going to dirt tracks. People are still going to these small paved tracks. Yeah. Um, I don't see why you know developers don't uh, you know use what's there, but I guess maybe, you know, it does come down to some of the the, uh, the neighborhoods encroaching on the area. You know, it used to be out in the field, but now it's uh, surrounded by, you know, local businesses, and, and it's just impossible. So, ah, boy, I'm talking myself in both directions here. Right. It's like, it's a great idea, it's a terrible idea. It's, I, it's, I it's possible, the, it's not possible. I think the bottom line here, Scott, is that uh, everybody in the audience, yes, you ladies and gentlemen, need to act now and get into the game early before Scott becomes an electric racing tycoon. <laughs> that was a terrible idea, wasn't it? Well, maybe, or maybe it was the best idea I've ever had. I don't know. But, uh, but that you, doesn't make it not a terrible yeah. idea. You know what else this made me think of? And What's just, that? just yeah. briefly, because yeah, I know yeah. we're wrapping up here, sure. but, um, 
Do you remember when we were going through that really serious drought here in, in Georgia for a oh, while? And yeah. uh, Lake Lanier, which is uh, this huge lake, it's it's 38,000 acres of lake. Mm-hmm. And it was down like, it seems like it was like down 20 feet in the shores. It was, it was yeah. crazy. You could see all the stuff that had been submerged yeah. as the water receded. Yeah, there were, you know, boats, of course, and, yeah. and like old buildings and everything, and cemeteries that were emerging and things like that. Uh, there was a racetrack that emerged uh, from underneath, and, and they knew no, it was there. No way. Yeah, there was a, sp- uh, I think it was a drag strip, I believe. And, uh, you know, that was something that was only visible for a short amount of time because, you know, it came back into view. Uh, this was a, um, just so you're clear on this, yeah. it was a, uh, it's a, um, it's a reservoir that was created by, you know, damming, uh, you know, a lake that, or, I'm sorry, a river that runs through this whole thing. Right. Because Georgia, fun fact, has no natural lakes. Is that right? I believe so. All reservoirs. So, mm-hmm. uh, this is a, a lake, or I keep saying that it's a river that runs on down to Florida, I believe. And and so we're constantly in this battle with Florida over who has the water rights to Lake Lanier, even though it's right here mm-hmm. in northern Georgia. Um, yeah, it's, it's a damning issue, you know, like, uh, you know, how much we're holding back or whatever. Right. But uh, so when this thing was super low, uh, it revealed all kinds of things. And this drought revealed this forgotten racetrack, this forgotten drag strip. And you can see photos of, you know, the old stands, because I think the stands were um, concrete. I think they were like steps mm-hmm. uh, that were poured. And, uh, you know, they were visible for a short amount of time, and then it was flooded back again. Of course, somebody knew about it, you know, when the area, the region was flooded, uh, but it had just kind of gone off of everybody's radar. We just forgot about it. And yeah. I think you can probably find it on some old, old maps, uh, but there's really not a whole lot of mention of it anywhere outside of this appeared again back in, you know, I think it was like four or five years ago. Now. Mm-hmm. Maybe even more. Maybe it was like six or eight. Um, but it was kind of an interesting thing that happened, and I, I would assume that, that sort of thing happens all all around. You know, there are other racetracks that have been uh, flooded. Built, yeah, you know. built on floodplains. Yeah, well, yeah, built on floodplains or, uh, you know, when they flood regions, you know, to create reservoirs right. and when a, a new dam goes in, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of history is lost. And, and this racetrack was one, you know, one little bit of that. I would guess that there's a lot of those all over the United States, all over the world, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just kind of forgotten. Yeah, and we want to hear about your experiences with them. If you have... If you were lucky enough to go to one of the raceways we mentioned or speedways we mentioned today, uh, we'd like to hear about your experience. If if there's one in your neck of the global woods, we'd also like to hear that story. You can contact Scott and I on Facebook and Twitter where we are CarStuffHSW. You can check out our earlier episode on abandoned car factories along with every single episode we've ever done on our website, CarStuffShow.com. Which, oddly enough, you know, I was thinking about this. What? Our biographies both make pizza jokes. Yeah, they do. That was a, was that just a, a weird day? Uh, coincidence, I guess. We both love pizza. That's true, man. If I was not doing, I would do, uh, an episode just about pizza, but I can't figure out how to relate it. I mean, you ask me about me, like about myself, and I'll tell you, uh, what kind of pizza I love. Yeah, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> I like all kinds of pizza, Ben. I mean, there's honestly, I, I probably have some favorites, but uh, but again, that's another podcast. That's a long podcast. That's a long. I mean, I I do some serious <laughs> research into pizza. Honestly, that's true. Oh, you know what? I got really into uh, a while back or uh, pizza commercials from other countries. Have you ever seen those? <laughs> oh, no, I haven't. Dude, they're they are at the forefront, my friend. They're doing amazing stuff. They got like shrimp in the uh, the crust. Oh, you've lost me already. And they got corn. Oh, yeah. Wait, Shrimp in the crust? 
Yes, sir. Oh my God! Someone, it sounds like someone to clean the kitchen if that's the case. All right, look. Well, we have we. I have some stuff to show you. We've got to go. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you would like to write to us directly, all our best ideas come from you, even the pizza-related ones. So write to us. We are car stuff at howstuffworks.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.